tonight we get to start uh, what is known as the Upper Room Discourse. I'm excited about it because we're actually going to get to do some theology. We're going to do some thinking theologically as we read this passage tonight. Connecting different scriptures and how they relate to one another to make sense of what Jesus is saying in John 14. But more than that, more than that, the, the excitement is the fact. The excitement is the fact that these are Jesus' last words to his disciples. The last things he wants to communicate to them. And so in a unique way, they apply specifically to us who live in this age. Not just the disciples of that time, but to us. Because Jesus is speaking about the new age that's to come. Where we are, remember, is the upper room they've had. Their feet washed by Jesus. Jesus shows the greatest act of service and humility to do a slave's work. Stand before them and wash their feet. Jesus says, what you are seeing now, what I'm doing for you, you won't understand yet. But one day you will. Jesus is saying, no servant is greater than his master what I have done, you must do likewise. Serve one another is the point. And of course, he washes his betrayer's feet. He washes the feet of Judas. And at the last moment, when Judas is ready to betray him, Jesus gives him one last chance to repent and offers him the bread dipped in the wine. A chance to repent. And of course, what happens? Judas's heart is hardened by Jesus' grace. In fact, it is in that moment it says that Satan enters Judas so that he can be empowered to do the work he's about to do, which is betrayal of the Lord of glory. And Judas goes out, and it was night. And we are here in verse 31 of John 13. Judas is gone. The betrayer is out of the room. Jesus is left with his faithful disciples. Those who would be committed to him. And so he's going to explain to them what is about to take place. And you can see as they question through this whole section, the section runs... From really John 13 is the beginning of it, at John 13, 1. And it runs all the way to the end of John 17, Jesus' great prayer. But all of it is subsumed. It, it is the whole point of this section is to tell the disciples what is coming and to define the act that he is about to do. He's going to explain the cross. He's going to explain the resurrection. And in a unique way, this whole passage, John 14 all the way through 17, has to do with the coming of his Holy Spirit. 
And that's why you see these sections throughout the whole discourse that keep coming back to that topic of this coming spirit. And why is that? Because Jesus is telling us what this new age is going to be like. This new age that is about to transpire because of Jesus' sacrifice. He wants them to know what it's going to be like. And so he tells his disciples, and yet he does it in, in many ways for our sake, because the disciples cannot yet even understand what he is saying. He is defining for them what the meaning of these acts are before they have taken place. And the disciples are confused and afraid. They do not understand what he has to say to them. In fact, Jesus later on will say, I actually have a lot more to say to you, but you can't bear anymore. But the Spirit will teach you. That's what Jesus says later on in this section of material. But for now, we are in verse 31. But remember that as we go through this passage, we go through this whole section the concept that Jesus is trying to explain is that new age that has dawned, the kingdom of God that has dawned in light of what Jesus is about to do. Because that helps us interpret what we're about to read. John 13, verse 31. Therefore, when he had gone out, being Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, the Son of Man, God will also glorify the Son of Man in himself and will glorify him immediately. What's Jesus saying? What have we talked about? This whole gospel about what Jesus' glorification is. It's the cross. Jesus knows that it is imminent. It's about to be glorified immediately. That's what Jesus says. I'm about to be glorified immediately. The time is at hand. And in this act, this act of Jesus going to the cross, it is the supreme example of God's glory. Which is, of course, hard to fathom, isn't it? That the suffering death of the Messiah is actually the act that shows God's glory more than any other. Jesus knows his time has come. It's time for his death. He says this, verse 33, Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. He's about to die. It is what he's just said to the Jews in John 8, if you remember, when he says the exact same thing to the Jews. He says, you will seek me, but where I am going, you cannot come. And he says to them, you will die in your sins. That's what he says to the Jews. And now he's saying something similar to his disciples. Where I am going, you cannot come. You will seek me. But what's the hope for them? That they, unlike the Jews in John 8, 
will not die in their sins. In fact, Jesus is going to go on to say that they will follow him one day. Where I am going, you cannot come. And Jesus leaves this commandment with them. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. We're left with questions about that. One, how is this commandment new? The people of God have always been called to love. In fact, when when Jesus explains love, when he defines love for us, he goes to two Old Testament passages consistently. Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your strength, with all your soul. And Leviticus 19, 18, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Those are the two verses. The command to love is not new. What is new? I'd say two things. One, that new age we talked about. The command to love is going to be the central command of that new age. The Ten Commandments don't define the new age of grace. The the laws of the Old Testament from the Pentateuch do not define the age of grace. The definitive command of the new age is love one. That is one thing that is new about it. And what is the second new component of the commandment? It is the standard of love. What is new about the love? Well, it's defined for us. What are we to love one another like? The way Jesus loved us. That is the standard of love. They're hearing this when they don't even know what he's about to do. This clearly is pointing back to the foot washing. Jesus' love for them is encapsulated in washing their feet, the way he serves them as their Lord. And last week, what did we say the foot washing is pointing to? It's pointing to the cross. The service of the foot washing is pointing us to the cross, that Jesus is about to sacrifice his life, and lay it down for them. We are called to love one another with going to the cross type of love. That is new. That act has never been seen before. That the Lord of glory would go to his death in love for us. The definitive standard of the New Testament. But not only is it the definitive standard for the church, it's actually our very witness. Jesus goes on, Love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By that love, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That love that we have for one another in the church is actually our witness to the world. Jesus says, you want people to know your disciples? Love the church. 
when he says love one another. Of course, Jesus has commanded us throughout the scriptures and throughout the New Testament to love everyone. Love our neighbor. Love our enemies, as it says in Matthew, right? We've been called to love, but we're called especially, according to John, to love the believers. There is a uniqueness to our love for other Christians. And that standard of love for Christian, the love that's supposed to look like Jesus' cross love, that's how people will know we are his disciples. The central ethic, the central reality of Christianity is that of love. Jesus tells us that right here. The commandment that is definitive for you is love. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Even with this great commandment on love, the disciples' attention is split because they can't comprehend yet the fact that Jesus is leaving. Their hearts are fully disturbed by that reality that Jesus keeps saying, I'm leaving, I'm going away. They can't hear the love command because they're focused on the fact that their Lord is leaving them. And who could blame them? That's why Peter asked, where are you going, Lord? Jesus repeats to him, where I go, you cannot follow me. Why can Peter not follow him yet? Jesus hasn't paid the price. Jesus is about to do a unique act in history that only he can do. In fact, at this moment, all the disciples can do is, like the Jews, die in their sin. Jesus has to pay the price first for any of us to be able to follow after. That's why he says, where I go, you cannot follow, but you will later. You will follow me to my death and to where I'm going later, Peter. And it's interesting because there's so much misunderstanding, but clearly Peter knows he's referring to something about death. Because he's going to say, I'm willing to die for you. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. I had a a new thought today as I read this passage again. It's the first time I've ever thought it. Remember when Judas is the betrayer, and we know that he's the betrayer as we read, but the disciples, remember, they don't think he's the betrayer. It says they don't know why Jesus said what he said to them. They're like, "Mm, maybe he had to go buy stuff for the feast, or or maybe he was going to go give money to the poor. They don't know why Jesus said what he said to Judas. They don't understand. The unique thought I had today for the first time is that in this moment, 
I wonder if the disciples think Peter's the betrayer. Jesus says, you're going to deny me. Peter must be so disheartened to hear that. And we know the disciples are troubled by what they've heard, probably both about Jesus' leaving, which they're still consumed by, but also by what Jesus just said to Peter. If Peter, this man who is closer to Jesus than, than any of us, Jesus' closest man, if he's the one who's going to deny him three times, three times, what's to become of all of us? I know they're troubled by that because we disconnect it because there's a chapter break. But the next words Jesus says, is still in response to Peter and the disciples around him. This is a plural verse. He's talking to all of them. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And this is cryptic. Of course, when we get to John 14, all of these comings kind of come at us at once, and we have a lot of different thoughts. We have to ask ourselves, what is he talking about? Is he talking about a second return that was coming later? Is he talking about resurrection and coming again? He's talking about pouring out the Holy Spirit. What is he talking about in this section? And what my contention is, is that he is talking about coming to them again after the resurrection to pour out the Spirit upon them. As I told you earlier, the entire section is about what's about to happen in light of the cross and resurrection and the pouring out of the Spirit. That's why the Spirit takes such a central stage. But I'll give you other evidence. My father's house. What is my father's house? The typical response, of course, is heaven. The, the popular uh, Christianity uh, refers to the, the heaven as the goal. Our end game is heaven. Go to heaven when you die. Scripturally, that's actually not the goal, is it? Scripturally, it's new creation that we would be reunited in a new creation. Heaven is an intermediate state that actually all is not right yet because God has not set the earth right yet. In fact, in Revelation, the martyrs who sit in heaven, under the throne, it says, we imagine that, hey, they're in heaven, everything should be perfect. They actually cry out for justice, is what it says. How long, O Lord, till you judge the earth? They're still waiting for something even in heaven. So, my father's house. John has actually defined my father's house for us already. He uses my father's house one other time. It's in John 2. Stop making my father's house a place of business. What is my father's house? It's the temple. The place where God resides. God resides in the temple, and so my father's house is the temple. He says, in my father's house, in his temple, his residence, there are many rooms, many dwelling places. There is space for all. And I go to prepare a place for you. 
What place is Jesus preparing? What's the conclusion of the my father's house in two in chapter two? The conclusion is Jesus is the temple. What place is Jesus going to prepare for us that will have room for all of us? Well, in light of what he's been talking about, Jesus is preparing that place by going to the cross as God's temple. All the language of the in him of Paul, the in Christ, all of that language of us as the temple of God where the Spirit dwells in us comes out of what Jesus is doing as the temple. The place that he's preparing for us is himself so that we can be found in him to be in the presence of the Father. How do we know Jesus is the place he's preparing? How do we know that Jesus is the spot of the presence of the Father? Well, what he's going to go on to talk about is how he and the Father are one. That's the next thing Jesus is going to turn to. The presence of the Father resides in Jesus, and he's preparing a place for us in him, so that in Christ he might fulfill the whole theme of all of the scriptures. The theme of the scriptures is this. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will dwell among you. That defines the scriptures. That defines what God's goal is. How do we make sense of Jesus needing to come? How do we make sense of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit? It's because God wants to make a people for himself so he can be their God and dwell among them. Why didn't Jesus just stay with us? Why did he have to die? Why don't we just keep Jesus here forever? He needed to pour out the Spirit so that God could dwell in his people. So that he could be in his temple. That temple that we are now part of. What other evidence do I have that Jesus is the temple they're talking about? Well, if you know um, biblical authorship, the author of John is also most likely the author of Revelation. The Apostle John. That's the tradition. And what does Revelation say when you get to the culmination of the whole Bible and the culmination of Revelation? It says this in 21, chapter 21. This is in chapter 21, uh, verse 22. He's describing the new Jerusalem. He's talking about this beautiful city, the holy city coming down out of heaven to earth so that God's dwelling can be with men and that God himself will be there, dwelling among his people, wiping the tears from their eyes, that there will be no more sickness and no more death, that it's a beautiful place with streets of gold, with gemstones everywhere as its foundations. And then he says this in verse 22. I saw no temple in it. There was no temple in the city. Why? For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Jesus is the temple by which we find the presence of the Father. Jesus is preparing himself by way of the cross 
to be that place where we can have relationship with the Father. And again, the evidence to me of this is as, as we go through this passage, where is Jesus going to turn? In John 14, he's going to say, and soon enough, my Father and I will come and make our abode with you. He's talking about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in which the Father and the Son come to dwell in the believer. So Jesus is talking about preparing himself as the place where we can be in him, in the temple, and be in God's presence. But he has to go to the cross to do it. Without the cross, we can't be in the temple. We can't be in the dwelling place of God. And he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. There is no doubt there is a future reality in which we will see God face to face. But we forget when Jesus is talking here about the pouring out of the Spirit that fundamentally we are already in the presence of God. The Spirit residing in us means that the very dwelling place of God is already in us. That doesn't mean it won't be a glorious, beautiful day when we see God in His Trinity, in His perfection, face to face. Of course. But what John's trying to remind us of is even now we have access to the Father. Now. Even now, the Spirit of God, God Himself, the Father and the Son dwell in us by His Spirit. All the things that we keep thinking we're waiting for, we actually have started to take part of even now. That should be flooring for us who live in this age that Jesus describes to his disciples before he's about to go to the cross, and they don't have any understanding of it. We live it. We are privileged to live in the age where all these things Jesus is speaking of are true of us already. We live in the blessed age where the Spirit has been poured out and Jesus has baptized us in Him. And now we take part in Christ with access to the Father, dwelling in the presence of God, that we can say He is our God and He can say of us we are His people. That should shake us. That should remind us of the depth of the beauty of what we live in, even this very day. Jesus says, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. Where is he going? He's going to the Father. That's what he says. I'm going to my Father. You know the way to the Father. Thomas said to the Lord, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. And the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 
See, Thomas says we don't know the way. And even though Thomas thinks he doesn't know the way, Jesus tells them they do. In fact, they have lived with him for the last three years. Even though they misunderstand what Jesus is saying, they know better than they think they do because they have lived with that very way to the Father for three years. He says, I am the way, Jesus, I am the way. That's his response to Thomas. I am the way. And of course, he is the truth and he is the life. The fundamental response he's giving to Thomas, though, is that I am the way to the Father and there is no other way. Again, Jesus makes an exclusive claim. Not that there are other ways and somehow Jesus stopped them all up and now we have to come to Jesus. No! Is that there is no other way. There never was. Without Jesus, there is no way to the Father at all. We are all condemned. We are all at a loss for life and truth and heaven and eternity. None of it is possible without Jesus, the singular way to the Father. No one comes but through me. Jesus says in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And guess what? From now on, you do know him. You do know the Father. And have seen him. You know him and have seen him. Remember I told you there's that special beauty about seeing God. And I'm, like I told you, that is going to be a glorious day. But much like we might think, oh, that glorious day has not come. We're still waiting that day. And it's not you know, quite as good as what we have now. Philip kind of thinks the same way. He says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. That it will be enough for us. We just want to see him. That great glorious day that's coming when we see God face to face. We're waiting for it. Can you bring it now? What's Jesus' response? It's not, that great day will come. I'll show you him. No. You've already seen the Father, Philip. Have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am, the, I am in the Father and the Father is in me? That we dwell in each other? Just like soon enough we will come to dwell in Jesus by the act he is about to do, the Father and Jesus and dwell in each other. He says, don't you know, Philip, the words that I say to you, I'm not speaking them on my own initiative. But the Father who abides in me is doing his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Don't you understand everything we've seen in this gospel so far? Don't you understand, Philip? All of those were signs that the Father is in me. 
And if you don't believe because I'm telling you to believe and you trust me, believe on the basis of those works. Those things you've seen are proof. They are evidence that the Father dwells in me and I in him, that we are one. Believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, again, the new age. He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do. Why? Because I go to the Father. Jesus says, because of what I'm about to do, to go to the Father, those who believe in me are actually going to do greater things than I did. Again, we have to ask ourselves, what does that mean? It's hard to fathom greater things than raising a man from the dead. It's hard to fathom greater things than healing a man born blind, calming a storm. What does Jesus mean when he says greater things than these? Well, in part, I guess it could be magnitude, right? Jesus, who was one man, confined to one spot, all of a sudden, all of his believers will do the work of the kingdom. We will all be doing miraculous things, preaching his word, and there will be fruit. But I think even more important is that that new age we talked about, Jesus' earthly ministry itself happened in the old age. It was a taste of the new age before the new age had come. When does the new age come? It's inaugurated by Jesus going to the cross and being resurrected, and it starts when he pours out his spirit. The new age is here. The kingdom of God has dawned when the Spirit is poured out by Jesus. So, the greater works are the fact that we are in a greater age than anyone could have possibly fathomed. And in fact, look at the response. Jesus' ministry, as we've seen throughout the book of John, is rejected on the whole. Jesus himself is doing the greatest works that humanity has ever seen, and people still don't believe in him as the Messiah. That's old age. That's the old age. Now, on the basis of the work of the Spirit, who is continuing Jesus' ministry on this earth through believers, people are changed even by our words alone sometimes. Isn't that miraculous? The power of the testimony of our lives can change someone's heart. It can change someone's destiny. We have greater fruitfulness than Jesus did when he was on earth. Because he gave us his spirit. Because he continues to work in his resurrection life through us. I think that's the sense in which we do greater things. It's not that somehow we're going to come up with supernatural things that are even better than the best things Jesus ever did. It's because we're in a new age where our words and our testimony and the works that we do, which may be supernatural, I'm not denying that, they are having supernatural fruitfulness of the new age where people's lives are being changed and their people are no longer rejecting Jesus as the Messiah fully like they did in Jesus' day, 
but many are coming to salvation. On the power of the words and works of Jesus done by his spirit through us. That's the greater works. Greater works than these he will do. Why? Like I said, because Jesus is going to the Father. Because Jesus is about to be crucified and resurrected, we're going to do greater things. And we have seen it in our own church. We've seen healings. We've seen miraculous things. We've seen the word preached. I believe we're going to see people come to faith. I believe all of those things will happen. It's the church age. God is at work still. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus says, we align ourselves with him. We make our will look like his. He's going to do the things we ask him to do. He's going to bring testimony. He's going to save lives. He's going to do healings. It's not an always guarantee that because we ask it, that it's going to happen. That's not Jesus' point. Our, his point is that we are aligning ourselves with his ministry, with his thought processes, with the things he wants to do in the world, so that he will grant our prayers because we have become his representatives on earth. He wants to do the things that he has always been about. We need to stand in that vein and ask for those very things. But I would say also, how does Jesus end this section? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What's Jesus' point? You can't be a wicked person and ask anything in Jesus' name and expect it like a magical incantation to work for you. You don't get to just... Jesus, uh, I need my Ferrari. And then it appears because you use Jesus' special name. No, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus is saying, you have to align yourself with me. You have to live like me. You have to think like me. That's what, when I will start answering your prayers like that because my will has become your will. You're looking to do the things that I want to do. Not because you can ask any wicked thing in my name and make it happen. You've become like me. You're representing me to the earth, so I will do the things that you're asking of me. And if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus ends our section tonight right there, right before he's about to talk about the coming of the Spirit. We will stop and talk about that next week. But Jesus ends with, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will do the things that I've asked of you. You will do the things that I've called you to if you love me. And what more than anything is the commandment? We opened our section with it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, which is epitomized by your love for one another. The epitome of keeping my commandment is the one that I defined the new covenant by, loving each other in the church. By that, all men will know you're my disciple. By that, you will show who I am to the world. By that, you will have the presence of Jesus with you 
because you're loving each other even as I loved you. We actually have the responsibility of making Jesus present in our community by the way we love each other. We actually are being Jesus to each other by the way we love. There's so much more to go through in this beautiful section of Scripture, this glorious reality of the new age that we are great, graced enough to live in. But for now, tonight, we'll stop there. Remember, we are called to love other Christians by the Lord himself. And in what way? The same way that he was willing to love us. He's willing to die for us, willing to lay down his life, willing to wash our feet, do slaves' work, be humble, serve each other sacrificially, and in that sacrifice, be reminded of Jesus' cross. Live that cross life. Love each other with a self-denying, self-sacrificing, lay-down-your-life-for-one-another type of love. That's what Jesus has called us to. Christians, be reminded of the beauty and power of what we live in today. Spirit of God himself dwells in us. That that place that Jesus was going to prepare as he prepared his body to be a temple that we might be baptized into, that we might take part in his community, that place was already prepared. Unlike for the disciples, it has already been prepared and we have been brought into it. In fact, we have become part of that very temple ourselves. A dwelling place for his spirit for the glory of God to dwell in us as a community and as individuals. He is present. He is here. He dwells in us and among us. Let me bless you tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for each person here tonight, God. Thank you that for all of us who believe we have been baptized into you, the temple of God, you, Jesus, are the very spot in which God dwells. In fact, you are God. And you are the dwelling place of God, the Father. And in fact, we came to know who God was through you who revealed him to us. We came to know who the Spirit was because He dwelt on you and remained in perfect power. As John 3 says, without measure the Spirit rested on you. And so because of that we came to know who the Holy Spirit was through you, Jesus. You and the Father are one. You dwelt together. You indwell each other. And by that we came to know who the Father was. You are our place of revelation. You are the one who makes God known to us, Jesus. So tonight, would you do that work again? Would you show us who the Father is by seeing you? And in fact, we did see the Father tonight because we read your words. And in reading your words and seeing who you are and how you lived, we saw God. Would that seeing God tonight rest in each one of our hearts? 
would we be reminded that when we look at the face of Jesus, we see the Father. Would your spirit dwell in us in greater and, and deeper ways with each passing day? Would you remove sin from our hearts and our lives? Fill us with your spirit in those deep, dark places in us so that we might better look like you, think like you, talk and act like you. Reveal yourself to us once again. We need that revelation. We trust in you. Lord, I pray that you would again reveal yourself to each person in here this week. As we reflect on you, think upon you, read your words, read other people's words about you, whatever it may be, Lord, as we listen to songs that praise your name, would you show up again for each person in this room? And we trust you, we commit our lives to you, and we're so grateful that you made the way to the Father for us. In fact, you are the way to the Father for us. Thank you that we were able to inhabit the place that you've prepared for us so that we might dwell with God ourselves. In Jesus' name and by your Spirit's power. Amen. Amen. Love you all. Thanks for being here.